Why is our immunity under attack? There's a massive increase in both the number of children and adults with allergic-like reactions to foods and chemicals and the severity of these reactions, as well as autoimmune disease, where the immune system, which should be our friend, starts attacking not only foods and chemicals, but our own body. Many people are cruising out of the COVID uh, infection or vaccination highly compromised with such autoimmune issues. What is going on? In this podcast, I interview Anthony Haynes, author of the award-winning Food Intolerance Bible, a pioneer in functional medicine and leading expert in autoimmune disease with 30 years clinical experience. Anthony, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Patrick. A pleasure to be here. Now, one of the most common approaches uh, you recommend to your clients involve not just avoiding uh, the substances that are found to be intolerant, but supporting mucosal immunity and integrity in order to improve oral tolerance. It reminds me a little bit of how we think about cancer. You know, the idea is you just remove it and there lies the problem. But you've got to look at what is it that's underneath that that is allowing a cell in that case to become cancerous. So I'm delighted to have you because you are at the cutting edge of science and successful resolution of immune system breakdowns. And I want to learn from you how to turn my immune system into my friend, not my enemy. Exactly. Yeah, well, thank you, Patrick. I think there is a very good parallel there. And you're right, underneath, you use the word underneath, and it certainly is... um, it's the, under, it's the river that runs through us. It's our, it's our gut lining where, as you may well know, 70, possibly 80% of immune reactivities occur uh, within that environment that's vital to support. In fact, one amazing um, statistic is the number of immune reactions that occur in the gut in one day, if an adult or a child eats three meals a day, is, is estimated to be greater than the immune system reactions that occur in the whole body for the whole of one's life should one live to 80 or over. So there's an awful lot of immune activity going on in the gut, and that's probably where we'll start. And you're absolutely right. I do look absolutely to support mucosal immune system activity and gut lining integrity um, with, with, with any client. In fact, I was asked the question just last week, and I would estimate that, that I would say about 50% of my clients, looking back uh, with an unaudited the um, view that at least 50% of my clients um, have some support for the gut lining. Now, in the past couple of years, I'm encountering more and more people who have developed autoimmune diseases. Again, some after COVID infection, some after vaccination, and more and more parents reporting extreme allergic-like sensitivities in their children. Can you start by explaining what an autoimmune disease is and whether allergies are more common these days, especially in children? and whether autoimmune diseases are on the increase. Yeah, definitely. So an autoimmune condition is one in which the immune system develops antibodies to one's own tissues. So effectively, it's uh, you're attacking self. So it's a failure to recognize yourself as friend and attack it as if it were a foe. And there are an ever-increasing number of potential blood tests to look at the various different tissues to which one might have antibodies. So uh, absolutely, autoimmune disease has become a phenomenon of the last 40 or 50 years by far and away increasing exponentially. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of percentages compared to 50 years ago uh, when it was much less significant. And there are various theories about that, including you know, the hygiene theory, antibiotics and, and vaccinations as well. But effectively, uh, the immune system is making a mistake, or at least, at least we think it's making a mistake 
by attacking uh, uh, our cells, cells, different, different tissues. And I've learned from fantastic professors exactly why that happens. And I'll certainly share more about that uh, if I can. In fact, what was fascinating is that I learned it's not so much that the immune system is attacking our own cells. What's interesting is that it attacks our own cells if they are corrupted by something else. And by that, I mean toxins and or viruses in particular. Now, but so before, we, before we dive into that, which yes. really is the set of circumstances that create this kind of reaction, um, what are the common autoimmune diseases? Not everybody will yes. understand what those diseases are. Yes, I think there are, there's, a, there's a list, official list of about 80, and there's a, there's a sort of unofficial list of going up to 200. Um, rheumatoid arthritis, um, psoriasis, Crohn's disease, um, and ulcerative colitis, um, and then you have lupus, which is uh, SLE, lupus. Um, then the sclerodoma. Um, there uh, is uh, multiple sclerosis, is a very famous one. Uh, neuromyelitis optica. Um, so those are those are common. So arthritic. And type 1 diabetes. And type 1, thank you. Yes, type 1 diabetes, which is actually a unique one on its own, is that it's, it's probably the most well-documented and one of the only autoimmune conditions in which there are more boys than girls. And the strange thing, if you just take that type one diabetes, is it used to be called child onset diabetes, isn't it? And yes. type two is adult onset diabetes. Now the youngest age of adult onset diabetes type two is three. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, there are so many adults who go from type two diabetes into type one. In the same way, there are people who have osteoarthritis, not autoimmune or not conceived of in that way. And then they tip into autoimmune rheumatoid yes. arthritis. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes. So what are the set of circumstances that create the development of either an autoimmune disease later in life or in children um, or allergies? Because we think of allergies always as a reaction to a food. But is it is it such a clear line that that's not autoimmune? What's the? Yeah, I agree. And I think it's really interesting to, to marry the two together. I should look at the two together as parallels because it's actually the same setting sets up for allergies, sets up for autoimmunity. I know you, you appreciate that, but actually it may not be uh, something that we're all aware of. Um, what set the scenes for allergy is um, there are a number of things, uh, effectively overconsumption in no particular order. The overconsumption of a specific food, and let, let's choose wheat or gluten as an example. So overconsumption of, of a food or foods to which there is a high chance of having a reactivity. So it's overconsumption of those, what I would refer to as the usual suspect foods, which is wheat, gluten, dairy, eggs, and soy, perhaps, those perhaps being the biggest ones of all. Um, but not everybody who consumes lots of wheat has a, has a food sensitivity or allergy. And we'll clarify what the difference is if you wish. Um, effectively, we need to have a, a robust mucosal immune system. And I referred to the 70 or 80 percent of the, all the immune system reactions occurring in the gut and the massive number that occur in the gut. And we've got a very, very sophisticated system within our guts where we first meet foods. And ideally, we'd actually meet that food and tag it as, okay, you're tagged, you're okay, we're not going to have an inflammatory reaction to you. And that tagging occurs through something called secretory IgA, which is the number one um, allergy prevention molecule in the human body, secretory IgA. Um, and it is it, it varies tremendously in its output, depending on, on, on the state of our well-being and stress and exercise and so on. So low... Can you, can you measure yeah. it? 
you can yes you can measure it it can be measured in stool the stool testing which is a little bit more inconvenient and it's probably less accurate than a saliva test so it's actually very straightforward in terms of doing it from home and there are a number of different labs uh, functional laboratories which offer a secretory iga as a spit test um, so yes you can measure it and i found consistently um, that levels are low in fact Stool levels are not so useful, but saliva testing, I've seen over 3,000 of these uh, secretory IGA tests alongside measurement of cortisol, for example. Cortisol being the major adrenal sort of stress or anti-stress hormone, and there's a strong connection between secretory IGA and cortisol and stress levels. So I've seen, yes, in 3,000, it's the most frequent test that I've conducted in my, in my clinical career so far, and it's, it's a very useful indicator. Uh, so just, sure. to, just to recap, the secretory IGA is therefore a bit like the bouncer at the nightclub that's going yeah. to let you in or not. And if yes, you don't, you. Yes. if you don't have secretory IGA, then, then uh, uh, you know, you're no longer tagged as a friend and therefore the immune system can go haywire. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. If you don't have the stamp on, then, then actually there's a, there's a greater ruckus when you, when you get to the club, as it were, so when you've got into would, the body. Why would some kids, let's say, or babies or infants have mm. low secretory IgA? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are more and more of them. From research that I've read, about 5% of the population have a genetic inborn um, levels of low secretory IgA. So it's quite rare for that to happen. That's estimated to be about 5%. So that could be an explanation. It's a genetic phenomenon, which may have occurred over, over the last few generations as opposed to longer than that. Um, otherwise, the factors that uh, contribute to it could well be the food that the mother's eaten during pregnancy the state of mind that the mother was in during pregnancy, um, possible medications that were used uh, at birth is a possibility, in, including antibiotics during pregnancy could have um, adversely affected the gut microbiome, the bacteria, that famous, the now famous, most people are aware of the gut microbiome being such a vital process. So, so vaginal birth babies, uh, are likely to have a stronger innate immune system and C-section babies need to be swabbed, vaginally swabbed immediately after birth to maintain that or to provide that fundamental platform of, of healthy gut microbiome. So there's many, many things that can upset that. So stress, microbiome imbalances, and overconsumption of, of foods to which there may be uh, a high likelihood of reactivity. And if someone has a low secretory IgA, what can you actually do about it? Yes, you can. Um, there, are, there are two probiotic substances in particular that have been hugely studied and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of papers uh, published on, on the subject there's one is a probiotic yeast which on the face of it might sound as if um, oh that's not the right thing to take but it's called saccharomyces boulardii which refers it in matter basically it's the yeast of, of boulard and dr henri boulard was a uh, frenchman who was traveling in malaysia and he discovered this on a lychee um, in malaysia saccharomyces boulard in the same way that perhaps penicillin was discovered by louis pasteur it was sort of by chance and saccharomyces boulardii elicits and helps to support secretory IgA more than any other probiotic substance known. So in that sense, yes, I've used and recommended Espelade um, thousands of times and still, still do. And then the probiotic bacteria, which is also the most studied bacteria strain in the world, is Lactobacillus GG, named after two professors from Tufts University. And that also helps to support secretory IgA. In fact, one could consider taking both. So you're actually supporting the natural output of secretory IgA, which I think is the only non-inflammatory immune reaction in the body. So you want to reduce um, inflammation and that's what secretory IgA does. So taking those two probiotics or one of them can certainly have a tremendous impact. There's also um, adequate levels of vitamin A, vitamins D, 
zinc and vitamin C, and it's very likely for at least one of those to be insufficient in any one we might need, let alone a child or, or an infant. Now, I read that glutamine, uh, which of course is a direct fuel for those uh, mucosal cells, also helps to promote secretory IgA. Is that yeah. the case? Yes, it is. Yes, glutamine. I, I remember uh, being actually, I think, in, in your company in the 90s when the glutamine sort of hit, hit the headlines as sort of all around Mr. Muscle of amino acids, but also it does support the gut lining. It has a degree of support for secretory IgA, but um, uh, in terms of the rate, as far as I, I can note from the research, it's if Saccharomyces boulardii achieves a 10, a 10 score for supporting secretory IgA, I believe that glutamine is a sort of two or three, if that helps. Now, if you did, I mean, for example, I'm thinking of an infant here and maybe you haven't been able to test SIgA. Um, would there be any harm in uh, putting in a few drops of vitamin A, a and D and some glutamine powder, which dissolves and some Saccharomyces boulardii and some lactobacillus GG, just that, anyway? That, that occurs to me is um, uh, utmost, uh, the precautionary principle. It's super, super, the word safe shouldn't even come to the conversation because that suggests there's something unsafe. So it's super nourishing. Um, and I would say it's an entirely logical, sensible thing to be doing. Uh, compared to any other method it is it's ultimately it's supporting the terrain to allow the body's wisdom that little body's wisdom to do what it will which is to support its own its own system so absolutely now the levels of vitamin a and d because they're fat soluble one needs to ensure that the levels are appropriate uh, for a for a small a small one um for sure but but effectively yes absolutely in fact vitamin a it, it just interestingly because vitamin d has hit been something that we're very aware of Many individuals may have a, a higher level of vitamin D than, than vitamin A. In some instances, vitamin D can block vitamin A because it's had the same receptor and that may occur in the gut. So it may be appropriate to actually consider the use of vitamin A first and then wait a month and then add on, add on vitamin D just as a more technical perspective. Yeah, vitamin A is the subject of a massive myth, and I'll tell you how it breaks down. Basically, Roche uh, knew that vitamin A was fantastic for the skin, but they couldn't patent it, so they created isotretinoin, uh, basically transretinoic acid, vitamin A, but messed up and patentable. Yes. And then some, some babies were born with birth defects, and this was attributed to the drug, not vitamin A, but to the drug. Yes. And, uh, as, and in fact, I've never, ever heard of a case of, uh, of birth defect as a consequence of supplemental vitamin A. No, and this so, is the conversation we've had with practitioners who called yeah. in and, and I support practitioners that they're saying, oh, will there be a teratogenic effect from the vitamin yeah. A? And all the supplement companies are now putting mixed um, car carotenoids in their supplements. But you yeah. and I may well know also that about 40, 40, 45% of the European North, Northwest European population at any rate don't convert the carotenoids to vitamin A. So it's yeah. actually the vast majority of, of mothers-to-be would actually end up being insufficient in vitamin A and not being helped by the carotenoids in their prenatal supplements so it's sort of been a it's been a the market reaction to that i agree it's um it, it is it is one, one of the biggest myths i believe and and, and, and so much so that on supplement labels they actually have to say you know do not take vitamin a in pregnancy and breastfeeding yes. yep. and I, I always use evolution as my backup and of course we know that vitamin a is incredibly rich in organs the brain the liver the kidneys yeah. and eyes yes so um you know, all animals go straight for the organs and no doubt our human ancestors when hunting or fishing 
uh, would also, you know, eat the organs first. And that's where you get the vitamin A. So yeah. why would a naturally occurring substance that we've evolved with over millions of years be teratogenic? You know, the yes. logic makes I'm, sense. I'm completely in agreement with you. I acknowledge that. I've heard this story before. And uh, yes, in the likelihood of having, I mean, apparently a woman who ate a polar bear's liver over a period of time, she must have been an Inuit, um, developed some degree of vitamin A, but of course it wasn't to do with pregnancy and teratogenesis. But the the, uh, the incidence of this is unbelievably rare. Um, and as you say, it may well only be associated with the, with the drug form. And probably it was the polar bear who ate the woman's liver, but we don't, <laughs> we don't see a lot of teratogenic polar bear pups. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, how can someone have a mild reaction to a substance mm. one day and an yes. extreme reaction another yeah. day? You know, first of all, it may be that I don't know the answer to this, um, but I have, um, having said about about going on going on twenty thousand clients, I have heard this very thing, um, and it sort of scratched my head, scratched my head. So I guess I start with I don't really know, but the factors that could contribute to it could be the amount of the allergen in the body. Um, but let's just say the person ate the same amount of the substance one day and the next day. Um, I think it it could depend certainly on the overall busyness of the immune system i.e. the allocation of resources so there's a histamine reaction these antibodies are reacting to this over there that over there but if they aren't reacting to other they aren't having any other battles they're not having hand-to-hand combat over there there may be a greater ability to mount a bigger immune response um, in in the absence of other foods which are causing some lower degree of reactivity which is not necessarily manifesting in symptoms so that's one aspect i.e. the busyness of the immune system uh, itself uh, it could you could also depend on the level of the uh, the time of day because the time of day also has a big impact on the output of cortisol. Cortisol it should be high in the morning and low at night. So again, I'd be looking at was it identical meal, identical time of day, uh, and therefore what are the reasons other than that? It, certainly, the gut microbiome, the gut microbiota can change within 24 hours depending on our food intake. So that could play a role, um, and it also potentially there could be. I mean, there could be an issue with other factors. Uh, which we might come on to to do with histamine is that uh, there are a number of things that influence uh, the level of histamine within the gut and or factors that might inhibit the enzyme that breaks it down and there could be that indirect effect going on so therefore there's a greater level of histamine to which to respond to that food on that particular day. Now do children outgrow allergies and if so why and for those who don't why not what's going on here? Yeah, and it's a good question. Again, I'll start with, I, I'm not sure if I know, and I've certainly studied this area, uh, but many children do, in fact, they do outgrow some of the most common food allergies uh, to milk, to eggs, to soy, wheat, nuts, and, and fish. Interestingly, um, these same Im- immunological researchers identified that environmental allergies to pollen and mold and dust, things that we breathe in, are usually not outgrown. So there's a different kind of response to things that we inhale compared to those which we eat now whether or not a child outgrows an allergy depends what he's or she is allergic to and when the allergy develops so when did that occur in life um, and um, and how severe is it the more severe it is the less likely it is to be outgrown um, I've got a, I've got a comment about that but each child's in, individual mucosal immune system needs to be optimally supported um, as well as the child being optimally nourished so we need to nourish the, the whole individual and the specific terrain in the gut and there again we come back to key nutrients although there may be you know 50 essential nutrients but there are key ones for this aspect of health vitamin D vitamin A zinc vitamin C uh, and glutamine which is a non-essential amino acid may also certainly play a role. And all, all of those could actually then have a major impact on whether the child can outgrow their allergy. Now, 
the studies that that I've been reading over the years never look at those variables. They just look at a, a sort of a retrospective epidemiological incidence of whether the child has recovered or not without looking at those variable factors. But it seems that the kids with a milk or egg or soy allergies are more likely to outgrow them uh, and at a younger age than, than kids with other allergies. And the younger your child is when, when the allergy is developed, the more likely it is that it will be outgrown. However, unfortunately, most children who experience those severe reactions, they, they say they're likely to never outgrow. But I would say my response to that is, well, these children specifically need the help of nutritional therapists familiar with supporting mucosal immunity. Now, when I wrote Optimum Nutrition for Your Child, the pediatric advice at the time was to delay the introduction of high-risk food allergens such as wheat, milk, soya. Now, quite a few studies seem to suggest the opposite early exposure to potential allergens to reduce later risk of developing allergies. There's also mm. quite a few studies about desensitization, you know, in introducing kids who are allergic to very, very tiny quantities. So what's your take on these two schools of thought? Yeah. And I think I've been, I've been, I was swept along with the first one. And dare I say, it, if I'd have had children at that time, which I think I did actually 21 and 16 years ago, I said, avoid those foods. So I, I held the belief, avoid 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 delay exposure to last possible moment however having been appreciative of these new studies i ha i have to say an understanding the immune system or at least my understanding of the immune system not that i will ever understand it fully i'm sure i would say that uh, controlled small exposure to the high risk foods in order to minimize the risk of developing sensitivity later is the best way to go and so what it means is effect effectively Nothing really changes is that, that our children would be avoiding gluten, dairy, um, maybe eggs still a bit later and soy. They'd be avoiding them, but only on, on certain occasions, let's say once a month, there will be a small controlled intake. So it's largely following a, 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 a diet which is excluding these foods, which have other negatives because they also may be heavily sprayed, for example, and maybe the major source of glyphosate in the diet and, and so on, i.e. the gluten grains. Um, I would say that um, intermittent controlled exposure to small amounts would be the best way to go. Now, I'm glad you mentioned that about the glyphosates, but not just that, because many years ago, I met a very charming man called Bob Quinn, who always walked around with his cowboy hat with a piece of Kamut Khorasan, which is an ancient mm. and very genetically simple wheat sticking out of it. And uh, he told me how wonderful this was. He had 8,000 acres growing organic wheat, never hybridized the exact grain that we were eating probably 20,000 years ago. But uh, that was you know, well over a decade ago. And now there are 27 studies, uh, very good studies, crossover studies, where people have put on this ancient Khorasan wheat or regular normal wheat uh, for six weeks each with a, you know, a gap in between, not knowing which they're on. Mm. Uh, IBS, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, you know, a recent one I think was on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But what's fascinating is that in every single one, when they measure the actual markers of inflammation, uh, you're getting somewhere in the region of a 30% reduction in inflammation. In other words, the body is treating this ancient wheat, which is very full of gluten, um, as a friend while they're treating the modern wheat as an enemy. And we always point the finger at gluten, but here is a gluten containing grain. And I've, I, I have the idea uh, that actually what's happened is some of these foods like soya and dairy products and, uh, and wheat are, are phenomenally different to how yes. they originally were because they're very commercial. 
So making hybridizations that have more gluten in the case of wheat or, you know, or soya, for example, the early, the early soya milks, you know, were terribly flatulent producing, but now there are strains of soya beans, which don't have the uh, inhibitors of, of digestion. So galactosidase, yes. Exactly. Yeah, They're yeah. very messed up foods. Same is true with yeast. I mean, yeast is now basically used to alter the way that, you know, foods taste and, and their mm. texture and everything else. So that's just my thought. It may not yes. be that soya is a terrible food or that milk is a terrible food or whatever, but we've messed around with the molecules. A yes, lot. I, I have to say, I, as far as I understand, that's exactly the way, the way it is. And when you mess around with the molecules, you change the amino acid sequences and the amino acid sequences. This is one story I've heard from, uh, I think it was Alessio Fasano, who has been pioneering look at the leaky gut story, um, is that the amino acid sequences uh, match those of certain bacteria which we've evolved to um the, the negative bacteria that are disease causing bacteria so our immune system is much more likely to react to them because those amino acid sequences um, resemble the bacteria mm. so it's interesting so cross reactivity so the, the hybridization has unwittingly or not uh, actually led to the, the foods being more recognizable as, as bad by the immune system and having action i think i think to add on to that uh, with, I think you add on to that the, the chemicals that have been sprayed onto them, that's going to make that worse. And then you add on to the fact that actually people may be consuming these foods three times a day and having way more than we used to have. I think all that lends to the, to the reason why they're the usual suspects. And when I was saying earlier on that we've got you know autoimmune diseases and then we have allergies, we know about this phenomenon of cross-reactivity. In other words, the body starts to seemingly react to a food protein, uh, but starts to attack a body protein. Yes. So in a sense, uh, you know, that line between autoimmune and allergy becomes kind of fuzzy. And I yeah. remember the very first study on this in rats where they, um, these were rats who somehow were genetically susceptible to type one diabetes. And they had one group consuming some dairy products and the other group consuming none. And uh, those consuming none did not develop type one diabetes. Well, those consuming uh, dairy, you know, the, the vast majority did. That is cross-reactivity. Yeah, cross-reactivity with a casein molecule. And this, that is cross-reactivity also with gluten. There's, a, there's a, an amino acid peptide. I think it's at least six, six or seven amino acids in length, so it's tiny, but it's identical to that same sequence in casein. So can, people can sometimes you can have a reaction to gluten, not have much dairy at all, but still come up on the food sensitivity tests, if that's mm. done, um, to casein. Yeah, cross-reactivity, definitely a factor. Now, do food proteins cross into breast milk? The UK medical wisdom says that only dairy crosses into breast milk, but this doesn't mm. seem to fit the clinical experience. Many babies do seem to react depending on what the breastfeeding mother has eaten. It seems to me that may be a little bit out of date because there's actually many studies that have addressed the effect of breastfeeding on pre and pro and symbiotics and vitamins and minerals, fiber and so on, and cow's milk, fatty acids on the development of allergies. Um, and uh, so it's essentially the, the diet of pregnant and breastfeeding women has been studied um, and it, it does influence uh, intrauterine development and, and breast milk composition. And studies can be conducted looking at the diet of, of pregnant and breastfeeding women um, to see the allergenicity or the sensitivity of their babies and infants. Uh, to see if they can be modulated by avoiding those foods or improving the gut bacteria of the mother, possibly that the, the baby as well, in order to reduce those signs and symptoms. So it seems as, forgive me, that view of um, 
the medical world is they haven't kept up to date with the recent um, studies, and there are many of them. And mm. a, a significant proportion of parents who who believe their babies' infants are reacting um, to, to breastfeeding exposures, given that that's the only food source that the infant has, um, have been found have been you know verified in in tests. Um, infants with parent-reported reactivity to egg, for example, via breast milk exposure, were more likely to also to report multiple food allergies. So once they have a reaction to egg, there could again there could be cross-reactivity with the various different um, amino acid sequences and peptides to other foods. But it's, what's interesting is that um, yeah, particularly with egg, there seems to be multiple food allergies associated with egg compared to even even to dairy. So it's just interesting. There are different different sort of foods that may elicit a wider array of cross reactivity, but there's no doubt whatsoever that uh, pro peptides, proteins do get through breast milk and can massively influence what what um, what the baby is exposed to um, and then contribute to food reactivity. And one sort of example of, of, uh, of a downstream sort of study looking at this is that that probiotic strain I mentioned, Lactobacillus GG, um, it's, it's had, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of studies. And one of the studies that I read was giving it to babies and uh, to mums or to mums found that that reduced the translocation of antigenic proteins from entering breast milk and thereby reducing the sensitivity in, in the baby. So uh, an app study was conducted at least 10 years ago. So, I mean, there are quite a few women who breastfeed and then the baby regurgitates. Uh, mm. Sometimes they say colic. Sometimes it's, it's very clearly vomiting. Uh, so should the first thing be to investigate what did that woman eat in the last you know, 24 hours or so? That has to be, that would be my first thought. I'm just imagining myself in a workshop with nutritionists right now. And we'd all, we'd all raise our hands and say the same thing. It's, oh uh, yeah, what are the mummy? Because we'd be saying that because maybe that the first thought that the medical doctor or pediatrician would have would not necessarily be that thought. Absolutely, what, what's, what's going on? What, what was consumed for sure? Um, no doubt about it. Just, uh, and that's where, you know, diaries, food diaries very useful. I find for, especially for mums, uh, who are breastfeeding it's far too far too hectic a time to make a note so actually i would suggest taking photographs with, a, with your phone um, of the food you're taking so you can actually have a look back on it and that's actually one of them or send it to the nutritionist so that the nutritionist can look at the foods you don't actually have to write it down so it's just a quicker method of, of capturing that record rather than actually writing the foods out when it's not going to be possible when you're looking after the babe but undoubtedly the food that food that's being eaten and then i'd be wondering um, certainly sometimes there can be symptoms within the mum, but they're ignored because we've got more important things to be doing, looking after baby. There may be no symptoms in the mum, but there could be symptoms in the babe um, when there aren't in the mum. So again, it, you can't tell from the fact that, oh, I'm, I'm okay to eat that food. That means it'll, oh, my gorgeous little baby will be okay too. It's not, not the case. So what can a breastfeeding woman or even before that, a pregnant woman do to help prevent allergies developing in their child? Yeah, it's, it's the same with um, as if they were, were, weren't having um, um, a baby as well. But it's whole fresh food, um, have a varied diet. Again, we're looking at the, the numbers of foods that people consume. I think of the average number of foods that the person in the UK eats 17. I think we choose most of our calories from 17 foods, which is which is hugely limited. And although 17, I think the average person consumes about 50 percent of their calories from three foods. So it's a, a very diet is vital. And I would maintain a rotation diet, i.e. different foods on different days, is one of the most effective methods of, of, of helping to reduce and deal with food sensitivities. But what, what are those three foods? Well, it'd be, it'd be wheat, um, dairy, and it could, could be eggs or it could be soy. And in America, it would be corn. 
because they eat a lot more corn there. But it would, it would be it would be wheat and or gluten grains, uh, dairy, possibly eggs, and it, it depends if the if the individual is eating um, so, uh, soy a lot or um, oats can be a challenge too. Even if they're, they're gluten free, there's a cross reactivity with a protein in uh, in oats, which is now more problematic than ever in my experience. So other than the varied diet, uh, is mm. organic particularly important, do you think? What are, what are the other factors that yes. could set up for a problem? Absolutely. First of all, if food is not digested properly, then you're going to have partially digested proteins getting through the, the gut lumen and causing a problem. So um, proper digestion is absolutely vital. So that's where digestive enzymes, for example, or certainly relaxing before you eat, um, ensuring that the digestive system can be switched on and chewing your food well, and not eating in a rush. And of course, this, this, this setting is probably being very unsympathetic to mums who are in a rush. Um, and what they've got to do is concentrate on their baby, but relaxing before you eat, chewing your food well, ensuring optimal digestion. So that's, that's, that's a lifestyle factor rather than a food one. Optimizing vitamins A and D, again, repetition, optimizing zinc, status zinc, particularly important. Those, these, these nutrients are vital for overall well-being and fertility and optimal growth of the baby, but they're vital for mucosal immunity too. Um, organic food, I believe, and I've seen articles from other nutritionists in the past saying that it's a, it's a fad that we should we should eat organic food. And I would say it's absolutely vital. Um, in the last five years, I have conducted more tests for environmental toxins in clients than I ever have in the previous 25 years. And I found that uh, the vast majority have uh, levels that are above the average population, the quintiles that are given and um, it's clear evidence that we're consuming too, too much of these things. These are forever molecules. No amount is healthy. And you want to absolutely minimize these, these toxins and chemicals. So, you, again, rather like with the, the, the Canoot and the, the wheat, modern gluten, aging gluten that you've been talking about. If you've got pesticides and herbicides on food, your, your immune system recognizes it not as the food, but as a food with a toxin. And so it's going to react to that food you think oh i've got the reaction to this food whereas the organic doesn't have that toxin to which uh, you're going to have a reaction so i would say it's absolutely sensible and vital to avoid um, pesticides and herbicides and have organic food where possible for sure that you may be aware of the, the dirty dozen and the clean 15 and that refers to the foods that are most likely to be most sprayed and uh, the foods that are less likely to be sprayed so a dirty dozen clean 15 from the environmental working group is useful for those people who can't access or can't afford because it may be more expensive uh, organic food i would also recommend absolutely non-processed whole food and minimize additives and food chemicals and colors um, i think you were involved in teaching me about the ben feingold diet for hyperactivity uh, absolutely plays a role so it's not just uh, pe pesticides and herbicides to inhibit bugs but it's also what is gone in the food so if we eat whole fresh food we're not going to be exposing our gut immunity to additives and colors and, and food chemicals and so on so it's really really eating whole and fresh unadulterated food uh, how, in in variety and how important is breastfeeding um I, I can't overstate just how important it is i mean there's nothing like it um i mean when it comes to promoting optimal health and growth for infant nothing compares to it i mean in fact i've heard this that you can actually call um, the only superfood for babies is breast milk, which is a, which is a quote I sort of remember from from recent times. So it's also hugely important for mum too uh, to to actually to breastfeed. So there are a number of different components in breast milk. Colostrum may be one of the most famous, particularly to do with the immune system. It's a, it's a breast fluid produced before breast milk is released. So it's the very first part of um, 
um, uh, the, like the breastfeeding process. It's super nutritious and contains high levels of antibodies, which are the proteins that fight infections and bacteria and, uh, and foods and so on. Um, and it provides vital immunity for the baby. And, and again, it really helps promote optimal growth uh, and health is colostrum. They're also protective carbohydrate sugars. Um, it's called oligosaccharides that protect the baby um, and, and help the, the baby's development. So that's another factor. There are certain stem cells in breast milk that help to develop into many different types of tissues within the baby, such as brain, lung, and liver. Um, and if an infant is consuming it, the um, colostrum, it consumes millions of, millions of these cells um, each day. Um, and can you give cholesterol, uh, not cholesterol, uh, colostrum <laughs> to a one-year-old baby who's got compromised immunity? Yes, you can. Um, it's usually sourced from bovine source. Um, and uh, yes, you can. You absolutely can. Um, so it, it can it can form probably then it's, it's the next and probably only next best available substitute if you haven't. So this is where the supplement industry, especially if the herds and, and the this substance, i.e. the dairy product from which the colostrum is made, was organically or at least pasture fed, minimal intervention doesn't have to be entirely organic because then the health of the herds could be could be less uh, well than, than if the animals were treated with certain things. But um, certainly the where the process of the production colostrum was intentional from the outset as opposed to a byproduct of the dairy industry so but yes absolutely colostrum can be would be i would say one of my, my um, supplements of choice now those who become sensitive often develop multiple allergies why yeah. yes and I, it was interesting because i quoted this the this research about, about those the children with egg allergy tend to develop multiple allergies and i think i think on the one hand this cross reactivity plays a role and it's this sequence of amino acids um, and so uh, apparently it's about six amino acids in particular is sort of the, it's a tiny amount. I mean, it's tiny, tiny compared to peptides of 50 and hundreds of amino acids in length. So cross reactivity is one. Secondly, if there's inflammation involved in a regular ongoing food allergy and sensitivity, that can lead to uh, the terrain, the environment being one of, um, of inflammation. So it's almost like the uh, in the heat of battle, the, the innocent civilian gets gets spotted as a, as a foe and might get shot, if you like, by the immune system, as it were. So it's the in, the inflammation generated by the allergy could then engender an, an environment within the terrain that then leads to other reactivities of other um, co-bystanders, as it were, that were being consumed at the same time. Um, there are certain other instances where this can happen if you have one allergy and certainly if you if you if you have alcohol so this would be in, in, in adults alcohol would increase the risk of developing multiple allergies so that might be a factor and perhaps lastly um, e excessive exercise if an individual has an allergy and they excessively exercise that suppresses secretory rga and increases the likelihood of reacting to any food they eat particularly the food is consumed after training so those could be factors. But I think I think cross reactivity and overall inflammation probably explain why one allergy can then lead to others. Yeah, I like to think of it like if you've got a worn out belligerent police force, uh, yes. they, they, they start uh, mistakenly arresting innocent people. Yes. Yes. The batons come out for the wrong guys. Yes. Now, there are 14 allergens that can cause anaphylaxis. Oh, yes. uh, what do they have in common? Uh, E.g. why nuts or shellfish can, but cucumber and tomatoes can't. Yeah, I've heard of these 14. Um, I think I know most of them are, um, obviously you've got milk. Um, yes, I've actually looked at those fairly fairly recently. So um, what do I have? Yes, yeah, good question. I know, I think sulfur dioxide, which is an E number, I think it's E220. Um, and 
that is one you know it's good it's a good question i'm not sure i can give you an answer what they have in common they actually um i'm not sure i can tell you the answer i kind of know what they are um i mean well, gluten, if, and, gluten if, milk and wheat and eggs i think are on the list too and so nuts and peanuts oh i think celery is too which is why it comes up on the list on the food if you turn the food over and celery is on there it highlights it in bowl on the back of the food product um it's not the same amino acid sequence um so actually i recognize that these foods do cook but in terms of the actual bi biochemical molecular assessment i'm not sure i can give the answer well if you find out let me know and i'll put it yeah. in our facebook group uh, you know when yeah. the podcast is out yes now the oh, sale of, the sale of EpiPens, uh, yeah. where you inject adrenaline, always gets me thinking of Pulp Fiction. Uh, if one has yes. an anaphylactic yes. shock, has yes. gone through the roof. And by the way, these EpiPens, uh, they look a little bit like a sort of cigarette packet, and you take the lid off, and it tells you what to do, and you put it against the skin, mm. and you press. So um, you know, it's not quite like Pulp Fiction anymore. Yes, but yes. the sale of EpiPens has gone through the roof. Why yeah. does adrenaline work? you know, to calm down a massive reaction, what's mm. going on? And actually the latest advice is to have two EpiPens. So yeah. If the first one doesn't work, you whack in the second. Yeah, and, I, and there's a really sad story of Natasha, who was a 15-year-old, I remember, and she was on a, on a flight from Heathrow to France, I think, and she ate a um, baguette from a, I think it was Pret-a-Manger, and it didn't say it's got sesame on it, and she, yeah. uh, and, and, but then the father gave her two EpiPen injections, which is not necessarily reassuring for the audience. Um, and, and she may have needed three or four, it's true, but uh, um, yeah, unfortunately she died from, from the sesame, which is extremely rare, which is why it hit the headlines. But adrenaline, what it does, I mean, it opens up the airways, so that actually stops the respiratory uh, failure, so that's huge important. It reduces swelling and raises blood pressure because you get a real hypertensive response with the anaphylaxis. So really, I think the three major pathways through which adrenaline works is just that, opens the airways, reduces swelling, and suppresses the immune system activity and raises blood pressure because it's it's a super sensitive immune and, reactivity. Uh, uh, why is the blood pressure helping? Uh, well, effectively, with um, with an anaphylaxis, it can be a, can be a syncope, can be a hypo um, hypo blood pressure effect, which can therefore drain blood away and have a significant impact on the central nervous system. So you want to raise blood pressure in in those instances. It doesn't always work for everyone, um, but certainly it's, um, and there are the, the, you know, you, you put it in the, in the middle part of the thigh, uh, directions are given, not in the heart, like in, um, like in Pulp Fiction. Um, but I, but it'd be, you know, it certainly can be effective. And I'm aware that it is selling out. And, and my sister-in-law's a nurse, and she's, she's uh, always encouraging everyone who has allergies to have at least two EpiPens, yes. Is it only proteins that cause allergic-type reactions? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's, yeah, given that... And antibodies recognize protein sequences. So yes, the vast majority of things to which we have allergies are proteins, yes. There are a few exceptions, but effectively, yes, it makes them mostly protein. There are a couple of things that you may have heard of CRP, of course you have, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the name arose because it was first identified as a substance in the serum of, of patients with acute inflammation that reacted to the C, the carbohydrate antibody of, some, of the capsule of pneumococcus, apparently. So, so it is a carbohydrate. There's also another sort of interesting sort of quirk of, of, of terms of CA19, is a commonly used tumor marker for some types of cancer, the CA something, but they've got various different numbers on them. And that's set the term for the carbohydrate antigen. Interestingly, the carbohydrate antigen is still a protein. So apart from just a couple of exceptions involved, involving immunity, the vast majority of allergies are indeed to proteins. Not all of them, but the vast majority, yes. And proteins are made of strings of amino acids. And when they're shorter strings, they're called peptides. So yes, you go, yes. amino acids are like letters, peptides are like words, and proteins yeah. are like 
you know, sentences. Yes, does, yeah. do, does cooking break down proteins and reduce allergic sensitivity? No, the protein doesn't get, uh, no, effectively it doesn't really. So the cooking can seal the protein, uh, yes, but I, not by any great amount, no. I think with the cooking proteins, effectively, I think what's more of concern is the sort of generation of these heterocyclic amines and these what's called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons uh, from meats, uh, which is basically, uh, you know, chemicals form when you heat the muscle of uh, uh, beef, for example, or chicken at high temperatures, particularly when you're grilling them over an open flame and they can contribute to types of cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, and so on. So I think there's a, more of a concern with that than, than to do with um, uh, allergy risk. So I'm not aware uh, of cooking have any significant impact on moderating the allergic response to any protein. The convention is that IgE type antibodies cause allergies, although we know that IgG antibodies can also produce allergies, but we call them food intolerances, I think partly for political reasons, actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, but there are many conditions from irritable bowel syndrome to uh, a rather recent one called F-PIES or food protein induced enterocolitis syndrome that are not necessarily mediated by IgE, what is an antibody? What are we learning about their role in sensitivity? You've yeah. already mentioned IgA. Yeah, it's actually secretory IgA in particular rather than IgA because there's no correlation, interestingly, between the blood levels of IgA and secretory IgA. And they're, they're not to be mistaken. Yeah, originally, when I wrote that book, The Food and Torrance Bible, um, of course, I could be, I should have been calling it the Food Sensitivity Bible. So allergy and sensitivity are immune-mediated, and intolerance is, is a reflection of maldigestion of a carbohydrate within a food, such as lactose intolerance. So, so um, I got the wording wrong. Uh, at the time. Um, so in fact, what's interesting, the word allergy originally in, in about 1900 was basically meant, the definition of it was an adverse reaction to anything. Then immunologists came along and they decided to say, well, okay, we're going to compartmentalize things and we're going to make IgE ours. And, and if it's, and that's called a, a true food allergy. And if it's anything else, it's a not true. It's a non-true food, non-true allergy. So it's like, no, that doesn't exist. So the language has been rather dismissive. But certainly um, of late, IgG is absolutely correlated food, with food sensitivity and um, the binding of IgG antibodies with a protein um, in the food, for example, it could be bacteria as well, results in an antigen coating and the formation of what's called an immune complex. Now, an immune complex um, effectively gets into the bloodstream and then can lead and can trigger further immune responses, releasing these what's called pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, which then develops inflammation elsewhere in the body. So what's interesting for in celiacs, which is the, the sort of allergy to, to gluten condition, there are more symptoms outside of the gut than within the gut. So you can't confine food sensitivity or food reactions um, just solely within the gut. And to answer your question about what an antibody is, an antibody is um, it's an immunoglobulin. Um, it's a large Y-shaped protein, so Y-shaped protein, used by the immune system to help to identify and then neutralize foreign objects such as a food protein or pathogenic bacteria or virus. And the antibody recognizes the unique molecule of the food. So it's like having, if you use the army terms again, uh, it's like having a bullet with your name on it. Uh, so, so if you're, it, you're only gonna shoot that, which is got, so it's just like a specific assassin's bullet, which is only gonna, uh, only going to address a specific protein as opposed to um, all the bad guys or all the foods in the environment in the media. So um, there's no doubt that IgG reactivities will also be higher when there is a compromised level of secretory IgA. So if you had an allergic child, would you always test for both IgE and IgG? 
reactions. And I would even consider IgA as well. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, I would definitely. In fact, there are only a few labs that do, do offer the IgA, but what's interesting is that that can be quite useful. But definitely, IgE is a general marker, and uh, that's looking at allergy. But food sensitivity, which is the delayed response, it's not the acute response. IgE can be very, very useful. And, and I've, I've uh, gone through waves of using lab tests, uh, thinking that I might be able to identify the usual suspects. And I'm, I'm currently in a wave which might be for a year or two long now. <laughs> in my 30 years of practice of actually yes you're using food sensitivity testing more and one of the reasons is there's always a food on there that i never would have clinically guessed at mm-hmm. uh, that, need, that needs to be avoided and whilst the, the major culprits may be the most important to avoid that there's always been a food or two or three that i would never have guessed at so the food sensitivity testing with igg i i you know i do find it useful it is relevant and the studies that have been conducted sh- showing which are double blind studies where individuals have avoided certain foods which have uh, correctly IgG positive and then they avoided foods which are not IgG positive the group that avoided the foods that really were causing reaction had an improvement in their signs and symptoms whereas the group of people who avoided the foods which were not positive in the test didn't have any change in their symptoms so quite nice studies um, absolutely showing the benefit of individuals avoiding those uh, those IgG positive foods. So to so recap we've got secretory IgA in the gut which is terribly important to have lots of Yes, it, it's its levels doesn't correlate to IgA in the blood or Correct. IgE Correct. or IgG. So if money Correct. was no object, test test them all because they're all yeah. showing if your immune system is reacting. Yes, some people can yeah. have a high level of secretory IgA, um, and that might be a warning sign that they they've got they've got overreactivity. Even if they don't have symptoms, it, it could also be an indicator that the uh, within the gut, the immune system is fighting an, uh, an unwelcome bug such as a bacteria or yeast too. And according to the official original definition, I can be allergic to the washing up. Yes. <laughs> now, That's, and that might be a chemical sensitivity, which is actually, again, the chemicals should not be overlooked. I know I've covered that briefly, but no, sorry. I don't think it's not yes. a chemical sensitivity. Um, <laughs> let's talk about histamine and so-called yes. histamine intolerance. Mm. How do you know if a person is having a histamine oh. reaction? Oh, you've, 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 it's opened the lid, not on... Um, yeah, was it Pandora's box? Quite. There are um, there are so many different signs and symptoms of histamine reactivity, and it's a subject that I have I have studied and come across. And it's actually much. It's more common today um, with the appreciation of mast cell activation syndrome, which is another histamine mediated issue. So histamine intolerance. There's a massive overlap with this thing called mast cell activation syndrome. You can have gut symptoms. So that's colic, bloating, uh, diarrhea, constipation, nausea. Um, feeling inappropriately full after a meal or menstrual cramps even so that's sort of gut related you can have skin conditions so you got red skin and that's the classic one that we know about red skin swollen eyelids perhaps um, itchy skin eczema gets worse you can have cardiovascular symptoms such as headache dizziness this hypotonia uh, palpitations e- even even fainting uh, can occur and then there's respiratory issues but to which uh, we might have greatest concern but uh, that could it could be linked to sneezing asthma uh, difficulty breathing or nose congestion, for example. So um, all of those need to be assessed. In fact, there is a questionnaire produced by researchers in the subject in 2021, which I use with my clients um, just, just to help to screen it out. If I get a sense that's involved, I actually send clients that questionnaire as well. So we've actually got a, a chart to see how they get on and they can complete that every single week uh, just and by t- ticking the boxes. Can we post that in my Facebook group? I will send you that. Um, yes, it comes from um, uh, Schnagel, Schnagel and Enco. They published that in 2021. It's not my paper. I'll send you the, the questionnaire and, and the reference, and certainly you can use that for sure. I'll Fantastic. Send it to you. Now, which mm. foods contain histamine? 
yeah, there are lots of foods that contain histamine and the high histamine foods. So um, alcoholic beverages, so beer and wine and liquor, and I've often wondered why beer and wine cause more of issues um, than perhaps other other liquors. But but alcohol fermented foods, so there's sort of this real um, clamoring for sort of eating fermented food and so on, being good for our gut. But it could be it could be really the wrong thing to do for an individual who's got compromised issues with histamine. So sauerkraut, pickles, yogurt, kimchi, all those things high in histamine. Shellfish, dairy foods aged foods, certain cheeses, most cheeses are high in histamine, certainly the hard cheeses and soft cheeses too. Wheat, wouldn't you know it? Um, nuts, um, not just peanuts, but cashews as well. There are certain fruits, citrus fruits, um, containing banana, papaya, strawberries. And there's, there's other categories as well, which we might go into. Uh, there's certain vegetables, tomatoes, spinach, aubergine, avocado, for example. Food additives, coloring and preservatives. And most of all, basically the key is to eat, to eat fresh whole food and not stored food. So it's canned fish. Any food that don't ever, ever, if you've got histamine trance, put, put, put the, the meal that you've just eaten, put the remainder in the fridge and then eat it for dinner later. That is that because the histamine is generated in higher amounts in exactly that kind of stored food. In fact, if you are going to store food, the best thing to do is to freeze it instantly and then don't let it thaw out too much, but then, but then cook it or have it as soon as it's thawed out, uh, etc. So it's the storing of food. Absolutely fascinating. There are also foods that trigger a histamine response that don't contain histamine necessarily but are called histamine liberators mm -hmm. and the real um the real challenge here is that chocolate and cocoa which is cocoa is a super antioxidant provider and polyphenol provider um also is a histamine um, liberator so it liberates histamine so you've got not necessarily not necessarily a high level of histamine in the food but it liberates certain foods and then you have um other um foods which contain biogenic amines and histamine is a biogenic amine and you get you they contain biogenic amines and it competes for the diamine oxidase activity and what's interesting the diamine oxidase the dao enzyme preferentially heads towards those before it heads to the foods rich in histamine so it deals with these foods over here and these foods are pineapple banana as on the list peanuts are there actually raspberries uh, legumes kiwi oranges papaya and wheat germ apparently on that list of biogenic amines so the, the dao gets consumed by those and there's not enough left for the histamine in the histamine rich foods huh. and then furthermore i know it's, uh, it's an interesting subject and it's, it's a massive subject and it's huge it influences people's health i've got it there are foods that inhibit the dao enzyme which operates yeah. within the gut only so back um, back in the 70s carl pfeiffer uh, mm. introduced me to histamine he had found that 10 percent of schizophrenics had high histamine levels yes and uh, also in a very basic blood test high basophils uh, he said was an indicator of that possibility he recommended at that time um, histidine is an amino acid that's yeah. much sort of richer in sort of in in kind of meat proteins and uh, he, his general advice was to be a little bit more sort of vegetarian inclined. In other words, don't go on a very high protein diet. That was his sort of kind of antihistamine. Obviously have lots of vitamin C, which are very potent uh, antihistamine. And then in, in, in uh, well, I'd say more recent years, for the last 20 years, we've understood that the process of methylation, so yes. dependent on B vitamins, B6, B12, folate particularly, but also zinc, and trimethylglycine actually breaks down histamine. So yes. is that part of this? 
Yeah, you've got well, you've got two enzymes that break down histamine. One is in the gut, the DAO, diamine oxidase. And then you've got the HNMT, which is histamine N-methyltransferase. And also the word methyl suggests that the methylation support will be used, and that works systemically. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it, it really is a question of identifying whether the individual has the issue in the gut. Um, and for that, there are a limited number. And also, I've, I've had, I have to say, great disappointment in clients who've taken the DAO, DAO enzyme, which they may have bought from Holland because we can't get it in this country so easily, um, and had no benefit whatsoever. And yet it, it's apparent that they've on a test they've had for DAO, it's low, but the DAO oh. suddenly hasn't made a difference. So I think there's a, the, having a low histamine diet is sensible. And certainly for those individuals who, who appear to be having a systemic effect, supporting this HNMT, this histamine N-methyltransferase enzyme with the cofactors for methylation, folate, B12, um, B6. And can you, um, so you can yeah, measure DAO, uh, you yes. can measure uh, the methyltransferase, you no, can you measure... No, you, you can't. I'm not aware of it. I'm okay. not aware of a lab test for HNMT, but I am aware of lab tests yeah. for DAO. So I guess homocysteine would be the indicator of that, yes. really. Yeah. yeah, I think and, it's probably the best marker. Yeah. And you can measure histamine. So I know kids who react to avocado, banana, aubergine, mm. raspberry, oh. such oh. seemingly innocent foods. Do you think this is due we've, to histamine? We've just, I've just listed those foods. I've just, I've just called them out, as it were. Except for avocado and aubergine. Um, no, actually, aubergine is um, was on the list on the list of histamine foods. Okay. And yeah, aubergine and and avocado. Okay. Yeah, so it could be yeah. it could be it could be a histamine response. So yeah. then it's a question of looking at what's the overall terrain in those individuals. Are mm. they consuming other high histamine foods that then may lead them to somewhat quirkily um, have reaction to, especially avocado being such a nourishing food? I appreciate mm. the eggplants part of the or uh, aubergine is part of the. Nightshade family, but it's um I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why not just give an antihistamine like mm. Benadryl? Is it harmful? Yeah. Well, I certainly think for those with MCAS, muscle activation syndrome, they are recommended H1 and H2 blockers. Look, there are four different receptors for histamine, and hence the different drugs are H1 or H2 blockers. I'm not aware of ones which are H3 and H4 blockers. So I think if the reaction is severe, I think um, and, and and you simply want to have uh, an immediate benefit, I think taking something like uh, an antihistamine may be uh, over the counter, may be useful. It depends on potential side effects. Certainly some individuals can be quite drowsy, even if they say they're non-drowsy, the individuals can be fatigued and it can affect cognitive function as a result. But I think that's certainly one option. If we just look at it from that linear perspective, can I take an antihistamine to help those symptoms in, in my child or myself? And I wanna have that on the shelf, that might be a, a good idea. However, um, from a holistic perspective, I would say, well, first of all, we could use an alternative that might be equally as effective. There are natural antihistamines. There's, uh, there's a, a, fl a flavonoid luteolin, which is a very, very good antihistamine. Quercetin is quite well known. Uh, nettle leaf extract, there's rutin. There's a specific strain of lactobacillus patrical L92, and it's been trialed in Japan and helps reduce birch allergy. Um, so it's lactobacillus L92. There's a perilla frutescan seed extract. We know about vitamin C. There's something called phytatin. So, and they have various different mixtures of uh, various different supplements that are specifically looking to lower lower histamine. But that that's kind of a pill for an ill, pill for an ill. Again, we look at the, for the terrain. So if you or your child has a reaction, then, then take a step back, have a, have a 35,000 foot view and say, well, what's going on with the microbiome? What's going on with the gut lining? How many of the usual suspect foods are they, are they eating? Are they getting a good night's sleep? Um, do they have too much stress? Uh, maybe they are they have they got adequate vitamin A because apparently the diet doesn't have much now because we, we've reduced greatly reduced our, our fat um, containing our fat soluble containing foods. So I think um, there's a short term sort of knee jerk reaction which you can have. 
um, and then there's a there's a longer term project about supporting overall health. Now, do certain vaccinations trigger autoimmunity? And mm. if so, which ones and yeah. why? And is there anything we've learned from the last two years of uh, coronavirus vaccines? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the first, first of all, I, I'm not sure I can say which ones, etc. cetera, but all, I believe all the adjuvants um, in, in the vast majority of vaccines before this current strain of messenger RNA, um, so-called vaccines, the really experimental gene uh, jabs, um, came on the market. So the, the adjuvants, the toxins, but at first it was mercury, they replaced lots of mercury with aluminium. And when you've got these toxins, they, they're latching onto cells. And I'll go back to something I said earlier, is that when the immune system recognizes the cell, attacks the cell, it's, it's attacking it or the nucleus, for example, with ANA levels being high as a marker of autoimmunity, it's actually attacking the cell with aluminium. It's attacking the cell with some, something else. So the, these adjuvants are, are foreign molecules and the immune system recognizes them as such. And when they uh, attach or in certain cell membranes, that's when the body will, will have a reaction to them. So the introduction via a route, via, which I non-oral route, straight into the bloodstream or intramuscularly, um, it, it, it negates the, the usual protective pathways um, of stopping these molecules getting inside the body. And so these molecules are that they, they actually concentrate in various different tissues. And so that sets the scene for the immune system to say, hey, I don't recognize you. I'm, I'm going to make an antibody against you. So absolutely um, would one be cautious of having any jab if one had a disposition to or an existing autoimmune condition. And you may be aware that the average person with one autoimmune condition on average has at least one. I either have more than one, they have two or three. And so the, uh, the, in the first weeks of these mRNA experimental genes um, medicines being on the market, uh, I was watching the sort of the immune news and it was basically that the, the, the group of people that should not take these at that time were those with autoimmunity. And the still same still holds true. And yet uh, that message has uh, of course been um, not really spread too far by the mainstream. So I would say every jab has an increased risk of autoimmunity. It depends on the nature of the specific types of adjuvants and toxins within it and where those tissues, where they end up in the tissues as to what that might drive. But then there's a genetic component too, because certain people may be more genetically disposed to rheumatoid arthritis. Some may be more disposed to MS, for example, and, and any of these toxins may actually drive either one of them. But I'm afraid that's too complicated a question for me to go beyond that which I've answered just now. Yeah, and in principle, I mean, many of my doctor friends, um, well, actually didn't get vaccinated, but the ones that did, you know, sometimes because they had to working in nursing homes, etc., mm. prepped, uh, they really got their vitamin C up, their vitamin D, some took aspirin, uh, you know, because there's always a, a clotting effect as well. Yes. Yes. And it was always logical to me. I mean, anyone who's actually been in clinical practice knows that the reality is there's a very small percentage of kids who became autistic after the MMR. I mean, it's just like mm. it's happened. I've met yes. you know, well over 100 who said, you know, where parents said my child stopped talking, you know, yes. within three days. So it suggests an autoimmune issue. It's not an accumulation of aluminum, something is triggering it um, straight away. So I always thought that before a vaccine, it might be very sensible to go on a hypoallergenic diet. Um, so you don't have that, you know, you're basically trying to lower the overall load. Yes, completely. Now, right. completely. If, that, if that was no option and then it was a, yeah. a, an unfortunate certainty that the jab had to be taken, then uh, categorically you want to uh, totally Correct. prepare that individual 
big prep right. time. Definitely. Yeah. Now, of course, the dialectic view is to avoid the offending item, but mm-hmm. you approach things differently, as we've heard, different ways to build up your immune resistance. Should we be clean or dirty? Yeah, good question. I think certainly I would, I would look to, if, if I could identify, whether it's for the test or whether it's through clinical observations where it's just common sense. So look, look. Um, little Johnny is consuming, um, you know, gluten on in four different forms on three different occasions every single day. Then avoidance of that is going to be a sensible idea. Sometimes, however, for for compliance, if the if the family or the individual is not willing to engage in it, when you have the test done and we've got the piece of paper coming back and it shows it on the test result in red and it's clearly a negative impact, sometimes that is actually so useful as well for the compliance um even if they understand intellectually just just to really help them to avoid that food but along with the avoidance of the obvious usual suspects uh, i would absolutely look to engage and support the mucosal immunity as we've been describing today and the gut lining barrier without a doubt and my analogy um for excluding these foods is, is a bit like um, painting with the water or a water-based paint trying to paint a wall in the pouring rain i mean there's just there's literally just no point so really want to we, we want to paint the wall when it's not raining and if you follow the analogy so let's let's take away uh, the source of, of, of something which would have a negative impact on our health and then we can actually do the healing and that'll work all the better and i think playing with dirt has been absolutely shown this is linked to the hygiene hypothesis uh, yeah clean clean basically wiping everything clean it's it's actually kind of like a biological insanity as so many things are that we we are unfortunately in modern times um it's just it's just insane you actually uh, without a shadow of a doubt, allergies, if you're a single child and don't have brothers and, ch- and sisters, you are considerably percentage-wise more likely to have an allergy or sensitivity than if you have one or two or three kin. So if you're one of, you know, got brothers and sisters, the reason being is because you're actually, you're playing with your brothers and, and sisters more likely outside than just by yourself, but also you're exposed to their uh, bugs and dirt as well. So it's absolutely right. Go and play Go and play in, in the field and, and get your, your fingers and, and engage with the, the, the earth microbiome as well. So dirty is my response to that one. Now, sadly, we've run out of time. I want to hit you with two final questions mm. as a wrap up. And the first is, so for parents listening who have extremely allergic children, what overall is your advice? I think, like I said, identify and avoid the major culprits, which would be the heavy rain um, in that analogy with painting the wall. So avoid the major culprits category because that can take the burden off. It's so difficult to get a positive outcome, positive response if they're still being consumed. And that might well need some advice, but also the usual suspects we've talked about them. It's quite obvious to identify what they are. Um, I think. I think certainly maintaining, if you talk about hygiene, maintaining a dust-free home. Yes, dust can definitely contribute all kinds of toxins. So actually, we haven't mentioned that today, but but certainly having a dust-free and being being clean, yes, but not not hyper clean. It's not being super hygienic. So I think so dust-free home, yes, but uh, but uh, I wouldn't use um, antibacterials all over the house. So there's a difference I wanted to sort of pass apart there. Encourage uh, play in the dirt rather than looking at screens. Um, support the child with a variety of food. So it's, it's again, it's not eating the same food every day. Rotation of a variety of food, having avoid the major culprits. Ensure optimal levels, if you're able to, vitamins A, D, and zinc, we repeated those. And also consider those probiotics, the lactobacillus GG and the saccharomyces boulardii to help secretory RGA. Um, and I think really that the key is to observe exactly what the child's life and diet is like, and then aim to optimize it with regard to mucosal immunity. So you take things away. And it may be a value to consider uh, some of the natural antihistamines so that the, there's, there's less need for medication as well. 
And finally, for all of us, uh, what's the key nutritional and lifestyle guidelines to keep our mm. immune systems working for you, not against you? Yeah, I think repetition is always good when listening to these things. So I, don't, I may have said these things already, but I think relaxing before you eat, because that allows the digestion to work. If you can't digest food, you're going to have a reaction to it, essentially. So you need to relax before you eat and chew your food well. I think, uh, I think that was lesson number one uh, in 1990 for me at the Institute for Optimal Nutrition. Uh, do not eat large meals. So that's another one. You're not going to be able to digest them. Um, eat a variety of foods, whole foods, eat organic. Consider digestive enzymes, certainly, because if you break the food down, you've got much less chance of having immune reactivity to it. If you do have a disposition to reactivity, I certainly would consider that the use of Espulardi and Lacto-GG. Um, consider other specific gut lining support, which might include glutamine, N-acetyl um, glucosamine. You can get a, a, a vegan form of that, not just from shellfish. Um, and there are other different nutrients. Rutin, quercetin can help that too, the gut lining. I think with for most folk, we've got we've got stresses, and stress absolutely has a major impact on the immunity. So, in order, so it's a non-nutritional, but it's a lifestyle one. Identify. Um, maybe with a partner um, or, or with a good friend or a practitioner, identify the, the stresses and see how you can have a different response to those stresses. It's much easier said than done and does require a lot of um, work and inner work too and, and change of outlook sometimes. But that it could be the character of the person that disposes them to then express their genetic disposition of, of, of allergy, for example, I worry, anxiety. And we know that's increased over the last couple of years, perhaps for good reason. Get a good night's sleep every night. So vital, so huge important for the, for the res restoration, recovery and repair processes to get a good night's sleep, absolutely vital. Now I haven't got a study on my fingertips, but I, I, I'm sure if I, it would take me five minutes on PubMed to find studies that show that people have insomnia, disruptive sleep and are more likely to have allergies. Um, do not over-exercise, but of course, and that's a proportion of the population. Uh, and I was in that group when I was younger. Um, but take exercise in one form or another regularly. So regular exercise supports the immune system, but over-exercise does the opposite. It suppresses it. In fact, one study um, of uh, triathletes were tested with their spit test just before the event. So they're, they're very fit, but they hadn't done exercise that day. And they had normal levels of secretory IgA across the board. And every single one then did a spit test afterwards. So not, this must have been a little project for, for some group of folk. They took their saliva after the event, immediately after the event, and every single triathlete had a lower level of secretory IgA. So just to give an example of more extreme exercise, it lowers secretory IgA. Um, and I would certainly consider minimizing the usual suspects um, and having, um, yeah, for sure, and avoiding ultra-processed foods. And I would say lastly, bearing in mind the subject we haven't really talked about too much, at least not directly, is the issue of toxins on the planet. Uh, I would say that this de the detox is a daily phenomenon, a daily need, not a two week holiday once a year. So I think engaging in detoxification support, whether it's skin brushing, saunas, um, Epsom salt baths, um, ensuring optimal bowel function, hugely important to diminish the burden of toxins within the system. Because when the toxic bowel gets too full, the body then um, has reactions and that can contribute to allergies as well. Thanks for listening. I have an Epsom salt bath almost every day. <laughs> So I remember you, Anthony, 20 years ago, studying at ION, getting very good grades. And I have to say, I'm extremely proud of all that you've done and all that you've shared and literally the thousands of people that you've helped. Uh, thank you for sharing your excellent and eloquent and highly practical um, wisdom. 
How do people reach you if they want a consultation? Yeah, thank, well, thank you so much, Patrick. And of course, it's um, it's, it's uh, right back at you because it wasn't it wasn't for you um, and Chris founding the ION. Who knows? I might have gone somewhere else. It's true, but. Uh, it definitely changed the course of my life. I, I did leave the armed forces to be a nutritionist and then I found the ION. So I'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful right back at you for that. And it's been, it's, it's, it's been easy on one level because it's been, I'm being so passionately engaged in the subject and I love, someone said to me, how are you going to celebrate your 30th year of, uh, of practice? And I said, I don't need to celebrate because I still have the same joy and pleasure of someone doing better with their health uh, now as I did then. So it's a celebration in itself. But to reach me, probably the best thing is, although I do, ha I do have a website, but really the, 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 it's um, sort of not quite finished because I, I actually have never really needed one um, because I've been so blessed with having um, so many referrals from existing clients, essentially. Um, I, I, my email, it's, um, it's my name. It's Anthony J. Haynes, Anthony without an H. So it's Anthony J. Haynes at AOL.com. I mean, email, probably the best route. Um, and if you don't get a reply from me in three or four days, please just resend it because of the sheer number I might get on certain days. So Anthony J. Haynes at AOL.com. And it's H-A-Y-N-E-S, not Correct. like Haynes, uh, uh, you know, mayonnaise. We, we, yes, we, exactly. Yeah. Anthony, no, no I that. anywhere. Anthony J. Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S at AOL.com. Yes, that's the best route. Love to hear from anybody. Um, and as I said, if you haven't heard me in three or four days, just send it again. Um, please don't think you're irritating me. It's just bring yourself back to the top of the list. Anthony, thank you very much for being my podcast guest. And thank you for having me.